Well, good morning, Cornerstone Church. How's everybody doing? Hello at home or wherever you are. Thank you for joining us. You know, it's been almost 15 months since we had um, Meredith Andrews and her husband Jacob Suter here for the marriage conference. It was in early February last year. It was like one of the last things we did before COVID hit. And boy, we're sure grateful that we got that in. But I was planning the worship and wanted to open with one of her songs. And then I thought, you know what? Let's just sing along with her to help us present worship to you. So go ahead and stand. We're going to have some fun this morning. All right, let's sing it out. We've waited for this day. We're gathered in your name, calling out to you. Your glory like a fire, awakening desire, will burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. So open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river. Flowing from your heart, feeling every part of our praise. All right, here we go. Your presence in this place, your glory on our face. We're looking to the sky. We're descending like a cloud, and you're standing with us now. Lord, unveil our eyes. You're the reason we're here. Come on, sing it out. You're the reason we're singing. So open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates. My mighty river flowing from your heart. Filling every part of our praise.
amazing grace. This is unfailing love that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You laid down your life that I may be. God, we thank you for the great things that you've promised you would do and the great things you continue to do before us today. Father, accept our praise and our worship. May you receive it and be pleased by what you see and what you hear. All right, come let us worship the King. Come, let us worship our King. Come, let us bow at His feet. He has done great things. See how His Savior is done. See how His love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. 
Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great things. You've been faithful more you have done great things and I know you will do it again for your promise is yes and amen you will do great things you believe that God you'll do great things come on oh hero of heaven you conquer the grave. You'll free every captive and break every chain. Oh God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. Oh Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh God, you have done great things. All right, sing it out. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, God, above it all. Hallelujah, God, unshakable. Hallelujah, you have done great things. Yeah. Hallelujah, God, above it all. Hallelujah, God, unshakable. done great things. Come on now. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquered the grave. You free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you have done great things. You're dancing your freedom awake and alive. Oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. Oh, you have done great things. You have done great things. Oh, God, you do great things. God, we thank you for the great things that you continue to do for us. We love you, Lord. And you know, Lord, during this time of worship, I pray that we would continually focus on you. And Father, may you use this time to center us again, to focus on your, your throne, your providence, your grace, and your mercy. Because I know, Lord, every day, that you would uh, have us focus on you and we get so easily distracted by the current events, the world around us. So I thank you for these times of centering and focusing. Lord, I pray that you would just draw us close to you each and every moment of the day. And may your voice be louder May your voice be clearer than all the others, than all the others. And may your face be dearer, and may
presence be truer. May your presence be nearer, yes, Lord, than all the others. Than all the others. And may you light shine brighter. Sometimes this is, um, go ahead and come on up, Tony. Um, come up, I just got one announcement to make uh, before you um, get started. But, you know, these moments of worship oftentimes are never enough. Put it on top. And um, so we wanted to start extending that a little bit. On a Sunday night, May 2nd, it's going to be the first of many to come. We'll try to have one, at least one a quarter. And worship night. So 7 p.m. Sunday night here, come, and it's just worship and prayer and a little bit of the Word and just bathing ourselves in the presence of the Lord. We get a little bit of this on Sunday mornings, but we're really going to just unpack it on Sunday night, May 2nd, and uh, just enjoy the Lord's presence through worship. And um, it's nice to see things open up a little bit. Um, I've been wanting to announce this for, I think, a year or more, and we've had to push it back several times because of COVID, but we locked in a date, Saturday night, July 17th. You'll hear more about it, but we're bringing I Am They in for a concert on that Saturday night. We'd love to uh, have you come and bring your friends, and I just wanted to put that little tickler in your ear. You're going to hear more about that. It'll be up on our website this week, and uh, we'll start announcing it more regularly from uh, from the stage on Sundays, but uh, I am they, Saturday night, July 17th, great time, fellowship, and concert, so look forward to seeing you then. Come on up, Tony. So, how many have never heard of I am they? So, I want you to look them up on YouTube. Yes. 
I am they is a, a, I am they is, are, it's a plural. Uh, They're a phenomenal um, worship band, and they come out of Carson City, and they made it big. So um, it's going to be exciting. I, I, this box is driving me nuts. It's an illustration. I'll get to it in a minute. I have one other announcement before we jump into the sermon. And that is, I was talking to Barry the other day and about we need to, to start opening up more of the things we do in this church. As COVID starts to go down, we want to responsibly ramp up some of the things we've done. You know, we haven't done greeting in a year. If, if you're visiting today, normally we would do a greeting time. You stand up and you shake hands and you say hello. We ask, you know, questions of you, make, make you embarrassed. That's not the goal. We used to have coffee out there, but we, we, we want to start rising, uh, are bringing these things back responsibly. But we need more people who want to join in to the greeter usher team, to do an, an information center, to do the hospitality. So I ask you this. Some, some of us have gotten, it's called rhythm. Some of us have changed our rhythms about church. And I'm asking you to, to rethink those rhythms. And remember, we're here to serve one another. We need people to join in ministry again. And Usher's Greeters is one place you can do that in a way to honor God and love his people. You with me? Okay, so let's, let, let me give you an illustration. Then we're going to jump in and we're going to pray. David McCullough wrote a book 20-something years ago. He's a pastor in California. And the book is called The Trivialization of God. The Trivialization of God, and the subtitle is The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. Okay, think about that again. The Trivialization of God. We've trivialized them in our culture. But the subtitles would grab me when I asked why. Titles grab you. The subtitle grabbed me, I bought the book and read it. The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. So, So do you have a manageable deity that you've put in a box? See, and I, I believe everybody's done it. Because you see, here's what we want in our Western world, our Western mindset. We've, we've kind of come to believe that our ability to reason, our rationalization, I can figure God out. And as soon as I figured him out, guess where I put him? In a box. Now, this box is pretty small. It's easy to bring up here. I don't care if your box is as big as this building. You can't put God in a box. You can't manage him. He is unmanageable. And today we're going to talk about the concept from Romans 9 of God's election of Israel and people who come to faith. It's a difficult passage. We're going to spend two weeks on Romans 9. And what I want you to do is to to humbly recognize we all have concepts about God that are limiting. And that, we put him in a box. And we need to let God out of the box. That's the third time I've dropped that thing. <clears throat> we need to let God out of the box as though he needs our permission. But better yet, we need to, we need to do this to the box. Because if we, if we don't do this, then we're going to put him back in. And, and so here's what I want to do. I want to pray. Here, Steve. I want to pray for our church and our country, because when we look at our country, we go, what's going on in our world? Things that, you know, from my perspective, people have gone stupid, and and it is God in control. God is working a plan, and when we let him out of the box and we grasp who he is and his sovereign plan, we can say, God, I don't understand how this craziness in our world fits into your plan, but I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to remain faithful to you. So let's, let's pray as we get going here. Father, we thank you that no matter what we believe, you are sovereign. You, are, you have this plan, Father, for your creation that you are, you are bringing to its proper end. And thankfully, Lord, that proper end means we, our salvation will be complete someday, as we've learned from the book of Romans. But as we day-to-day move towards that event when Christ returns. Lord, give us the faith to trust you in all the craziness that's going on around us. We pray for our country, Father. We bring it before you as we read headlines that, that we ask ourselves, what is going on? 
So Father, intervene. Intervene for righteousness. Intervene for your glory. Raise people up who, who know and love you to be in leadership, who want to bring honor to you in the leadership of this country, Father. And, and Father, remove those who are against you. Now, Lord, we know that you work through all people, those who love you and those who hate you. You work through them to accomplish your purposes, as Scripture tells us, like Nebuchadnezzar. But, Father, you ask us to come to you in prayer, and so we are. Um, protect our country. Give great guidance, wisdom to leaders. Bring great humility to them and repentance to them as they lead and sometimes mislead our country. So, Father, thank you. And as we look now at your word and the concept of your election of Israel, give us the humility we need and the understanding we need to trust you. In Christ's name we thank you. Amen. Open up to Romans chapter 9. The, if you're visiting today, or I, I, met, I met several families last week who are new to town. And as, as we know, if you've been a long-time Incline Village person, a lot of people, or, or North Tahoe person, a lot of people have moved here from California. And, and be nice to them, because you all came from California too at one time. Um, so did I. But we have several visitors in church today, and, and we're in the book of Romans, and we took a break for Easter, but we're starting Romans 9. And Romans 9 is one of the most difficult sections of Romans, so, so be patient with me. All right, so I'm going to review Romans up to this point, because we took a few weeks off. I'm going to read to you the theme statement of Romans, which is Romans 1, 16 and 17. This is Paul's gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. So to Paul, there's only two groups of people, Jewish people and Greeks or Gentiles. He uses different words there. For in it, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the theme of Romans is this gospel of righteousness. How do you gain this righteousness? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, God has a plan. And today we're going to look at the fact of God's plan for Israel, the Jews. But let me review things. So Romans opens up with that statement, then it goes into two and a half chapters to show us that all humanity is under sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, doesn't matter their heritage, their ethnic background, all of them are condemned under sin. So once he establishes that, now he can bring this gospel of grace in. It's not by, it's not by works of the law. This gospel is by trusting in Jesus Christ. You were justified by faith, justified being declared righteous. And he showed us how he did that. He actually united us with Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We, we have been in some mystical way. When Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. When Jesus was raised, you were raised. And, and God used that union with Christ to bring us our salvation and make us alive so we could walk in a new manner of life. That's what Romans 6 says. You now have a new manner of life to where sin is no longer your master. Our salvation is also described in chapter 8 as adoption, that you have been adopted. And we're going to see that Israel was adopted today too, but let's, let's just focus here. You've been adopted, and the Spirit of God lives in you. But it also says in Romans 8, your adoption is not complete. Because we still live in this body, and, this, and living in this body is a struggle. There, there's pain and suffering every day. And, and there's temptations, and there's the flesh that I give into. Even though he's given me the power to fight it, sometimes I fail. So there's this whole struggle with someday Christ is going to return, make this body just like his, and then it says my adoption is complete. I now have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is Romans 8. But that day I'll have the fullness of the Spirit and my adoption will be complete. And Paul described this as our hope. This is what we're hoping for. And this hope is certain. Hope is not something, oh, I hope it happens and maybe it won't. This is a certain hope. Paul gave us five words. Those whom he foreknew... Help me out here. Those whom he foreknew, what was next? He predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. He put them all in the past tense, even though you're not glorified yet. But from God's perspective, it is done. Then he ends Romans 8 with this. It's a mind-blowing truth. That God loves you, will never leave you, 
and nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So that's where we ended this three weeks ago. Now we're going to pick up in Romans 9 through 11, and Paul addresses the question of Israel. Has God abandoned Israel? Paul's writing to a church. If you remember from the very first week, Paul's writing to a church that was predominantly Jewish. But then Caesar got ticked at all the Jews and chased them out of Rome, cast them all out. And so this, this, Jew, this church now in Rome goes down to primarily Gentiles. And then years later, he allows the Jews to come back and they're coming back to a church that has grown almost exclusively Gentile, and now the Jews are rejoining it, the Jewish Christians are rejoining it, and there's conflict. Paul is writing to that conflict. He's writing to a church that's primarily Gentile, and he's asking the question of Israel. Christ is the Jewish Messiah. Why is there so many Gentiles, not many Jews believing? So Paul is addressing the question, has God abandoned Israel? Is God unfaithful? Is God unfair in how he elects people to salvation, whether Jew or Gentile? These are the questions we're going to look at for the next couple of weeks. But 9 through 11, he ends chapter 11 with these verses, and I want us to start there to remind us who God is, to open that box, let him out, and bring us some humility. So here's our starting point. We're going to look at Romans 9, excuse me, Romans 11, verse 33. This is how Paul ends this whole section. After he explains it all, look at the verses on the screen if your Bible's not open. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So, so do you believe God's knowledge, i.e. his plan, the depths of it, the riches and wisdom of it? The knowledge. Here it is. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In the end, I don't get to go to him and say, God, bad plan. I've evaluated your plan and I think it falls short. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? P Paul quotes Isaiah 40 here. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The answer is nobody. And he summarizes it. Paul loves to do this. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, one translation says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. So in the end, we let God out of the box. He is the supreme. He is the transcendent God, the sovereign God, who's working his purposes. We are his image bearers that he is called to be his children. But let's remember, this is kind of supposed to be funny, so laugh, Randy, Okay. So there's two things that I know to be true. There is a God, and we're not him. And, and let's remember that, because we sometimes get to this box, I don't care how big it is, and as soon as I put him in a box, then I control him, or so I think. With that, let's ask the question, is God unfaithful to his promises to Israel? This is how Paul opens up Romans 9. Let's look at Romans 9, 1 through 6. Romans 9, 1 through 6. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. So, so don't let that pass by you too quickly. Paul, who cherishes the fact that he is redeemed, he's saved, he, he, is, he is bound for glory. And he says, make no mistake, if I could trade my salvation and be damned so Israel could be saved, I'd do it. That, that is, is a mind-numbing statement, truly. You know, you know, obviously, Paul, Paul, this is the gospel. Paul knows that's not going to happen. 
But I don't think this is just rhetorical. I think Paul means it. I'm, my heart is broken over the fact that my countrymen, many of them, most of them have not believed in the Messiah yet. It breaks his heart. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship. That worship there is the temple worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're going to talk about those in a few. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now look at that. Leave that verse up there, Dell. If we accept this translation, look what it says. It says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. And who's the Christ? And that's an easy one. Jesus, who is God over all. Paul's making a statement here that Jesus Christ is God over all. A couple translations have changed it to say, whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, and God blessed forever. The, the, the translation is difficult. But most of the translations say this, that Paul is ascribing to Jesus Christ a deity. He is God over all. And, and which, which, which if anyone comes to believe that, especially a Jewish person who only believes in one God, and the ramifications that the Father, Son, and Spirit are that one God should blow their minds. We're so used to the concept of the Trinity that it no, it doesn't longer, no longer blows our mind. But for a person who is, who is a follower of, of Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, believes in one God only, the idea that Jesus, his son, is that God, Father, Son, Spirit, three in one, um, it blows their mind. And it's very hard for them to accept. Very hard for them to accept. So, the question, oh, oh I, I stopped reading. Let's keep reading, sorry. But it is, not, it is not as though the word of God has failed, and I believe there's Paul's primary concern. Is God unfaithful to Israel? I want you to think about it. Romans 8 ended with what? Your salvation is secure because why? God loves you, and he'll never stop loving you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Well, the next, I know that was three weeks ago, but then the next chapter is, oh yeah? Didn't he abandon Israel? If he abandoned Israel, wouldn't he abandon me? Has he abandoned Israel? Is God unfaithful to his promises? That's the question. The answer that Paul gives, he starts it here, we'll introduce it now, we'll actually pick it up in Romans 11 where he goes into great detail. Not all Israel is Israel, is Paul's answer. There's a remnant that will be saved. But let's look at his answer here in 9.6. I, I read you the first half of 9.6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. God has a sovereign choice of certain Israelites called the remnant. And he goes into that now. So God's sovereign choices and fairness. And this is where you gotta let the word of God challenge your beliefs right now. The, as I said before, I, I being typical, I think, that um, I kind of think I got it figured out. So God, you must act in accordance with my understanding. And when I read a scripture that you don't act in accordance with my understanding, it creates a crisis. Because in this crisis is, that's not fair. Because how many of you have a really strong fairness monitor? It's kind of like my, my kids when they were teenagers, all the time. That's not fair, Dad. And what is the typical response of a parent to a child that says that's not fair? Life's not fair. Deal with it. Because we, we don't have an answer either. So we just kind of rhetorically throw that back at them. But there's things we don't understand in the plan of God. So, so we're going to look at this question of fairness today. 
Because Paul brings it up, and he asks several questions. So we'll start it this week, finish it next week. So let's look at this. God's sovereign choices and fairness. The example of Isaac. Look at 9, 7 through 9. And not all the children of Abraham belong, excuse me, not all the children, okay, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall be your offspring, your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. You guys know the story of Abraham. Abraham, God chose Abraham. Of all the, all the people of the world, God chose Abraham. said, Abraham, through you I'm going to bless the whole world. Through your children. Now when God said that to Abraham, he was 75 years old. His wife was 65. How many kids did they have? Zippo. And, and he also called him to leave his homeland and go to the place he was going to show him. So he had no children, no land. And he made a promise to him. Abraham, through your children, they, your children will be like the stars of the sky. That's how many you're going to have. Like the sand of the seashore. And then he took him on a mountain. He said, you see all this land, which we call Israel today? It's going to be yours. Well, Abraham had no children. He didn't own nothing or anything, whatever the right grammar is there. But there's a promise. So I want to show you a slide. You probably can't read this in the back, so I'm going to narrow it in a minute. But on the left is Abraham. Then we have Abraham has first Ishmael, then Isaac, then he had six sons with a lady named Keturah after Sarah died. So he ended up having eight sons. They populated the Middle East. But then it's Isaac, through Isaac, is then Jacob and Esau. And from Jacob comes the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons. And from there, you see to the right through King David is Jesus. So from Abraham 2,000 years later to Jesus, this is the line of, of Jesus, the, of the lineage of Abraham. So Paul is dropping into this lineage. And so I wanted to show you the big picture, but we're going to narrow in in a minute here. And let's do it right now, Dell. So from Abraham... The promise comes through Isaac. Not Ishmael, not the six sons of Keturah. The promise comes through Isaac. That's who the promise is through. So not everyone who's born of Abraham is the child of the promise. You with me? So, so is that fair? It's, um, Tina, you messed me up, Tina. I'm going to ask a question in a few minutes, is God unjust? And Tina will agree with me after that, no. But to our thinking, sometimes we go, wait a minute, God, is this, is this right? Is this right? So let, let's, let's keep that in mind, because next he shows the example of Jacob and Esau. Abraham, Isaac, then Isaac had two children. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, had two children. Let's read what it says there, the example of Jacob and Esau, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, this is a very important verse, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. There's some problematic things here for my mind. But first, I want you to see something. The older will serve the younger. In most cultures, and Israel was no different, the older had preeminence. The older got a double portion of the inheritance. In this case, they're twins. But Jacob is born second. And it's a great story. Let's go back to Genesis and read it because when Esau is coming out, what's Jacob doing? His hand is a hold of Jacob's heel. And so Jacob had the name, the, 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 the one who trips up somebody. And he got older, he tricked Esau to get in the birthright to where Jacob, the second born, became the prominent one, and the, the, the one who received the blessing of God and not the older brother Esau. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. 
that's, um, I want you to put that slide back up, Del, if you would, please. Do you see there, it says Jacob and Esau, and this is in Genesis 36, the story of Esau, and how he gave up his birthright. But then it says, the father of the Edomites. The phrase, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, actually comes from the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Bible. A book of the Bible that was written, oh, a good 1,400, 1,500 years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived. And you see, when he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's a rhetorical device. My commitment is to Israel, the children of Jacob. One of their enemies is the Edomites, who are the children of Esau. And I'm against them, God says. My devotion to my people, I'm against those who are against you. So so that stark statement, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, has a historical context from the book of Malachi. But Paul grabs it here, I think to shock us. Does it not shock you when God says, I hate somebody? It should. It should make us step back and say, what's going on, God? What are you doing? Because I'm not allowed to hate people. But, but God, at this point, is saying, I am devoted to Jacob and the children of Jacob, not to Esau and his children. There's a, there is a covenant I have with Jacob's children, not with Esau's children. So that's the rhetorical device to show the stark difference. But now, now this is, you have to think through it. I'm not going to solve all my questions today. I'm certainly not going to solve all yours. But verse 11 is very important to understand for Israel and for our salvation. Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. This is called unconditional election. Why did God pick Jacob over Esau? Did he look ahead in time and say, well, Jacob's going to have the better character? You know the story, he doesn't. He's a jerk. He tricked his brother into giving him his birthright. His mother helped him. So Jacob is not the one with greater character. See, God wasn't looking at their character. God's looking at his purpose. It's called unconditional election. When God decides who he's calling to be his, it's for his purposes Not because he looked ahead in time and said, you guys are smarter, you're good looking, you're better. He has his purposes. And that's why we hear stories of people like Ted Bundy accepting Jesus. He doesn't deserve to accept Jesus. If it's true, supposedly he came to faith before he was put to death. He's a despicable person. How could God ever let him in thinking I deserve it? You with me? So the concept of unconditional election that those whom God chooses, starting with Jacob over Esau, is for his purposes, not because of some, he, something he saw in Jacob. So Paul is raising the, raising the reader's sense of, God, this is not fair. So he addresses it in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So under the title, if you're following the notes, can God be unjust? Can God be unjust? If he chose Jacob over Esau, not because of something Jacob's character was better than Esau's character, but because of God's purposes, sounds unjust to me. Can God be unjust? Let me read 914 again to you. Sorry if I'm messing you up, Del. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. We're going to stop there from the scripture perspective, from a Romans perspective, and pick that up next week with Pharaoh. Because you think this messes with your head. Wait till we talk about Pharaoh next week. But what I want to do now is answer the question, can God be unjust? I want to look at scripture to show you that you and I should never bring a charge of injustice and lay it at God's feet. Ever. And this is the whole box thing, that if I have God in a box, then he has to act according to my understanding of justice, when in fact, my understanding of justice is incomplete. His is complete. So let me, three passages of scripture, 
First is Genesis 18.25. This is the story of Abraham. God is going to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy it. But who's in Sodom? Lot is, Abraham's nephew. And, and Abraham is saying, God, you, you, you can't do this. There's righteous people in that city. You can't destroy the righteous with the wicked. So you know the story. He starts with, well, God, what if there's 50 righteous people down there? Are you going to destroy it? And what does God say? If there's 50, I'll spare the whole town. Well, Abraham knows there's not 50. How about 40, God? 30? He gets down to 10. In the midst of that debate with God, that bargaining, this is what Abraham says. Far be it from you to do such a thing. So this is Abraham talking to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. So Abraham knows God would not kill a righteous because he's killing a wicked too. Oh, collateral damage. Abraham knows God wouldn't do that. So he asks God of the question that the, he knows the answer to. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Some translations, shall not the God of all the earth do what is right? So from this, and I'll show you two other passages, I want to give you a definition of justice. By the way, in the Old Testament Hebrew, in the New Testament Greek, the word in the Old Testament and the word in the New Testament, Greek and Hebrew, can be translated justice or righteousness. To be just or to be righteous. So both Hebrew and Greek, the word comes into English and the translators have to choose the word just, righteous, justice, or righteousness. So I'm using the words interchangeably. So here's the definition. God's righteousness slash justice means that God always acts in accordance with, accordance with what is right. And here it is. He himself is the final standard of what is right. This is so important to grasp. So it's not that there's this thing out there in the universe called justice, and God matches it. So we can go out there and say, well, here's the universal definition of justice that's outside of God, and my God follows that. That would mean there's something greater than God that set the definition. But what the Scripture teaches us right there, my definition, which I'll show you, God determines what is just. When he says this is right, guess what? It's right. And we'll see that next week when, when Paul objects to Pharaoh. We'll see that this definition, we'll bring it back again. But let me show you two more passages where it specifically says what God determines is right is right. He determines what's just. He determines what's righteous. So Deuteronomy 32, this is Moses' poem. Moses has been told, you're not going into the promised land. Joshua's going to take him in. And, and that, that's one of those stories. You go, really, God? Because what did, jo what did Moses do wrong? Forty years of putting up with the Israelites in the desert. And God says to him, I want you to speak to that rock and water will come out. And what did Moses do? He hit it twice. And God says, because you dishonored me, you don't get to go into the promised land. And when I read that story, my heart sank. This guy has worked so hard, so hard. And now, in frustration, he doesn't follow God's rules. And God says, Moses, you didn't honor me in front of the people. You don't get to go in. You know where my mind goes? That's not... And I still struggle with it. I'm going to be honest with you. But here's what Moses says after Joshua has been shown to be the leader. Deuteronomy 32 has a poem or a song that Moses sings to Israel. And here's just one line. Verse 30, chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, and who's the rock? Yahweh is. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So where I will come to Moses' defense and say, God, that's not fair. Moses says, it's 100% fair. God is just. And so he wants the Israelites to know the God you're following is a just God, a righteous God, and he's always fair because he sets the standard. Look at Isaiah 45. God is speaking through Isaiah. This is now, oh, seven, eight hundred years after Moses. Speaking 
through Isaiah about his plan for Israel among the nations. He says this, I did not, I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say of, to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. So the place I want to leave us today, and, and this is a, 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 a theological sermon, but remember, all, all life is informed by theology. Every decision you make, at some level, is deformed by what you, informed by what you, not deformed, informed by what you believe. So do you believe God is just? Do you believe that fundamentally, when the world seems unfair, life has come against you, and you thought something different should happen to you? Will you go to God and say, God, you blew it? Or will we say, God, I know at the core of your being, you do what is right every time. That you are a just God. You are a righteous God. Everything you do is right. My circumstances right now, I don't see it. I don't understand it. I don't like it. But I trust you. I think Christ on the cross is where he landed up. Same thing. So... I want to end with rereading to you the passage we started with, Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. So, put your name in there. So you are from him. He's the original. He, he, you exist because he created you. You are from him. It's through him that you live your life. Because it's, it's an interesting passage in Hebrews and Colossians say it. All things hold together by the power of his word. All he has to say is the word, and guess what happens? Everything goes away. Everything. All things hold together by the power of his word. So you exist through him and to him or for him. Your entire existence is for his glory, how Paul ends it. To him be glory forever. So never bring a charge of injustice against God. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Never bring a charge of injustice against God. When life says the God in my box isn't making sense right now, and throw the box out. When we don't understand, don't assume you know more than he does. He owes us nothing, but he's lavished everything upon us. That, that's, that's, don't let that escape you. Go back and read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 where those, that, that's taught. He owes you nothing, but he's lavished everything upon you, his grace and mercy. And let's not lower God to our level of understanding to make him palatable to somebody else. That's often what we do in the gospel. We, make, we want people to believe in our God, so we kind of redefine him. In the end, we make him lesser than he is, so it's palatable to people's understanding. But we set a foundation there that will destroy people's faith later. Let's let God be God and not us. If you're someone that likes to read, I, am, I read constantly. I'm a very slow reader, but I never stop reading. And on the website, that, that for this, that whether it's the church's website, Facebook, or wherever this sermon is posted, there's notes. And in those notes is two book recommendations for you. If you're a reader that you want to pursue this more, I've put two books in there that give you two different perspectives on this subject. One is by R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. And the other one is called Arminian Theology by Roger Olson. Both are phenomenal scholars, excellent communicators. They'll engage these scriptures and many more and push you and challenge you to wrestle with scriptures about who your God is. And I've read them both. Um, so if that's what you want to do, go pursue those. As you know, 
Agreement with me is not what I'm looking for. It's your pursuit of God through his word. And if you do that and we disagree, then I, I, you know, that's okay with me, as long as we're both pursuing this great God. You with me? Father, thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Thank you that we go through our days each day, all day long, stumbling sometimes, sometimes with great intent and purpose of being faithful to you, other times incredibly selfish. But you never leave us, you never abandon us. You have great purposes for us each day. Help us to wake up tomorrow with that in mind. Lord, how can you use me today? Lord, I want to be your servant in your purposes, no matter what that means, whether it means joy or pain. We want to be your servant in your sovereign purposes as you bring salvation to the people of this world. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, be, please stand up. You know, it's interesting, uh, as I was pouring over Tony's scripture this week, um, this song that I grew up singing in Sunday school, that's how old it is. Uh, we won't sing it quite the same way I sing it in Sunday school, but the words just jumped out. And um, if you were not fortunate enough to grow up in church, um, rest assured that if worship is on your heart, he will etch the words in your heart and your mind. And in certain moments, God will bring those forward for a rich uh, moment of worship. But I'm going to sing this for you and have you, have you join in. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing. I will sing, and I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord, and with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness. Thy faithfulness with my mouth will I make known Thy faithfulness to all generations I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever I will sing I will sing, and I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Anybody else grow up with that one? So it's new to a lot of you. Good. So we'll sing it again, and I want you to be mindful of the words and, and what Tony um, taught today that there's actually a, uh, a part of Scripture where God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's the final arbiter of that. So any mercy, any stroke of grace or uh, mercy that you see in your life is truly a gift from him. And we should celebrate that. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing, and I will sing, and I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness thy faithfulness with my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever I will sing yes I will I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. However you want to sing about the mercies that the Lord bestows on you, 
Make sure you do that to him each moment. God bless you. We'll see you next week for worship again.